Greetings to our current listeners out there. My name is Jasmine Zouillon, and I will be your host for the Global Currents second inaugural deep dive episode. Today, we are bringing you a special show on U.S. foreign policy during President Joe Biden's first 100 days in office. We are honored to welcome two special guests and experts from the Seton Hall School of Diplomacy to discuss the subject further. First, we have Dr. Anne-Marie Murphy. Dr. Murphy is a professor and directs the Center for Foreign Policy Studies in the Seton Hall School of Diplomacy. Dr. Murphy's research interests include international relations in Asia, political development and U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia, and the rise of transnational security issues. Dr. Murphy, thank you for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here, Jasmine. Our special guest is Dr. Edwards. Dr. Martin Edwards is an associate professor in the Seton Hall School of Diplomacy, where he teaches classes on international organizations and research methods. Dr. Edwards has conducted research on the International Monetary Fund, which was supported by the National Science Foundation, and his book titled The IMF, the WTO, and the Politics of Economic Surveillance was published in 2019. Great to have you on the show, Dr. Edwards. Thanks, Jasmine. So for our listeners out there, the day we're recording this episode is exactly 82 days into the Biden administration. There have been many people saying that President Biden's foreign policy is Obama 2.0 in that it appears that Biden, like Obama, has a multilateralist agenda. And many of the same people from the Obama administration have top jobs in the current administration. Professors, do you agree or disagree with that President Biden's foreign policy is Obama 2.0 and why? I would argue that on the two countries that arguably pose the greatest threat to the U.S., those were that were identified in the Trump administration's national security strategy 2017 as the major peer competitors to the United States, that would be China and Russia, we're actually seeing um, a very different policy despite the similarity in personnel. Um, So the Obama administration had viewed China as a rising power that could be a responsible stakeholder, um, that because China had grown rich under the US-led global order, it would have an interest in helping to sustain it. In contrast, Uh, The Biden administration does not hold those illusions. It sees China as a actor that threatens U.S. interests in the South China Sea, uh, in a number of other areas, and is treating it as such. Similarly, the Obama administration attempted a reset with Russia. We are not seeing that. So at least on those two critical issues, um, a very different policy. Professor Edwards, uh, President Biden made a speech on February 4th in the U.S. State Department headquarters where he stated, quote, I made it very clear to President Putin in a manner very different from my predecessor that in the days rolling over in the face of Russia's aggressive actions, interfering in our elections and cyber attacks are over, we will not hesitate to raise the cost of Russia and to defend our vital interest in our people. How would you characterize President Biden's foreign policy with Russia, and how does this differ from President Trump's, specifically in that it's not a reset? Um, I guess I'd say two things. Um, One thing is about um, ends that, you know, this is about attempting to 
make Russia accountable for its actions rather than not. Uh, and I think that's a profound difference from the previous administration. You know, we've reinstalled sanctions. We're pressing for you know, individuals that were guilty of cyber attacks. We brought justice. These are things that didn't happen um, in the previous administration. The other thing is it's not just we're doing things differently. I think we're working very differently. And so there's more of a focus on enlisting allies rather than yelling at them. Pivoting back to President Biden's foreign policy overall, what are some notable successes and failures of the current administration during the past 82 days? Yeah, I don't think I don't think it makes sense for us to think about failures at this point. Right. That's like we're in the second inning of a ball game. Right. Okay. And yes. so, I mean, I just th I mean, that's a nice frame for Fox News. <laughs> right. But that's all it's good for. Um, you know, we're going to we're going to we're going to assess the value of the administration in four years, not in, you know, not in four months. Yeah, I, I, I think that there has been so much work that's been put in on reassurance. That on, you know, talking to allies, hey, the game is different. We're not going to spend all of our time disrespecting you, making up ridiculous statistics about how much we contribute to our joint security. Uh, we're not going to focus on that. So I think that that's, again, Again, the means by which the U.S. has worked have been very, very different, right? And I think that um, the rest of the world sort of has, has taken notice um, that, you know, we know that this is – I think that that frame that says that Trump is Obama – or I'm sorry, that Biden's Obama 2.0, again, I also think that that's sort of facile because the world's a really different place. And – you know, the fact that we have to sort of rebuild all of these ties that had gotten frayed intentionally over the previous four years. I think that that speaks speaks a lot to what we're trying to do. So I think that that and that is, in a sense, a reset. Right. And I think that that's been that's been very successful right out of the gate. But that's what you would want to happen. And could I follow up on that, Jasmine? I agree wholeheartedly with Dr. Edwards that it's way too early and too facile to think in terms of success or failures. I also think we need to look at the extremely complicated nature of some of the key challenges facing the Biden administration and how the Trump administration in some cases made them much more difficult, right? So we can look at the Iran deal, right? One of the key arguably successes of the Obama administration was a deal that halted Iran's um, aim to build nuclear weapons. That got thrown away. And what we've seen since is Iran then moving toward greater um, work on that in part as a threat to get the U.S. back to the table. That's one of the most complicated challenges there is out there, right? So just on the Iran deal, that is extremely complicated. If you look at the issues with North Korea, right, that is another key nuclear challenge that the Trump administration, yes, tried a new uh, method other than, quote unquote, strategic patience of the Obama administration, which was not working. 
The question, but Obama, or excuse me, Trump never had a good strategy, right? He did not engage the experts to try to forge a deal that would lead piece by piece to denuclearization. Instead, he awarded Kim Jong-un with two presidential meetings. Now Biden's got to grapple with that. So on those two things, we can see how complicated they are. And then you add in COVID, right? Um, and how COVID has exacerbated conditions in both North Korea and in Iran. And if you're just looking at the Middle East, then you can also look at Yemen, where the Biden administration has really tried um, to rejig its relationship with Saudi Arabia, trying to forge a peaceful, I shouldn't say peaceful, but trying to get relief to the um, many people at risk of food security and famine. So the nature and the magnitude of the challenges facing the Biden administration is extremely complicated. When President Biden took office, like you said, he inherited a myriad of um, international problems, but also domestic issues, like political difficulties that came along with the U.S. Capitol. That took place in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, um, divided partisan politics, and a country that is being affected every day by the COVID um, pandemic. So in your professional opinion, how do you characterize President Biden's ability to juggle his domestic agenda with his international agenda and commitments. I think in a very real sense, going to give it as Dr. Murphy said, the magnitude of the challenges that we face, not just abroad, but also at home, it's hard to imagine a different way to get the ground running in 100 days. There are so many issues to combat, and they're trying you know, their what is their what is their approach right now? We're going to try to deal with everything that we possibly can, right? And this does open open you know them up to criticism in some sense because you know it's like people people might say, well, you know, where's the Africa policy or something like that? These things are coming, right? But I think in a very real sense that this is about you know this is about strategizing. This is about first things first. This is about re juggling a whole lot of relationships that were in very different footing in the previous administration and rebuilding a lot of trust the previous administration had squandered. So, you know, I think, and, and, and of course, on to end, as Dr. Rove said, on top of that all, you know, we have a pandemic to fight that's killed half a million Americans. So it it is difficult for me to actually look at this and say, no, 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 this is not in balance. Um, you know, conventionally, when presidents are thwarted at home, they, you know, go abroad. But I think that there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of balance here between what's going on domestically and what's going on internationally, because they are, in fact, of course, connected. So in early March, Anthony Blinken made a speech and he ranked tackling the climate crisis and driving green revolution as the administration's sixth foreign policy goal. President Biden has made fighting climate change both a domestic and a foreign policy. Do you project that this is something he can and will successfully make significant changes in? This is really interesting because this gets us at a concrete issue that you can look at the international and domestic challenges toward 
attempting to tackle the global climate crisis, right? I mean, it's very easy to rejoin the Paris Agreement, right? But that just signals your commitment to meet your domestic goals, right? It's really the domestic plans to mitigate and adapt to climate change that are critical. So I think where we need to look at this is in the infrastructure bill, right, that President Biden has just put out that has a lot of components that are attempting to shift the U.S. economy towards what some of you would call the green revolution, right? So the Biden administration and working with certain car companies, apparently many of the car companies are already saying that they want to go bulk electric car by, I forget if it's 2020 or sorry, 2030, 2035. Well, if you're going to have electric cars, then when you rebuild and regrid the roads, you have to have charging stations, right? So are you going to include that in your infrastructure deal? Biden administration says yes, right? Because as we rebuild better, as their slogan is, you want to rebuild green, and that's going to be longer term, sustainable, more jobs, et cetera, et cetera, at home to support its commitments abroad. You're already seeing the almost kind of knee jerk reaction, right, from the Republican side in the polarized Washington we have, saying that if it's not a road and it's not a bridge, it doesn't constitute infrastructure. So you have an administration trying to think very broadly about what constitutes infrastructure to set the path toward that green economy that will help meet those Paris climate change agreements, whether you can get there or not is a completely different issue, but that's the challenge. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I building on that, I mean, obviously, so, okay, so we're back in our Paris. That means we need a nationally determined contribution to fight climate change. That's easy enough for the White House to generate, right? The Obama team did it. and we, But we can't go too far here, right? Like the, the idea that... Um, a carbon tax is tenable. It's just not going to happen in that Senate unless, yeah, unless unless there's some sort of dramatic spiritual moment on the part of Joe Manchin. That's not <laughs> that, that's not going anywhere. So so we don't want to we don't want to sort of overinterpret this, right? But I mean, but all of but but you know everything that Dr. Murphy said that that the, the that's all about. You know, creating incentives for green manufacturing and then realigning infrastructure. I mean, all of that's in a nationally determined contribution. So we can make some real headway here, but it's not going to be a carbon tax. That's just not going to politically happen. So it sounds like there's a lot of there's domestic politics that go into President Biden's climate change policy. But shifting to a reform perspective. President Biden stated in the 2020 Democratic debate that China needed to be involved in the Paris Climate Agreement. How do you think, given current Sino-American relations, how will that affect his ability to carry out his climate change agenda? I mean, well, you know, China wants to be a leader in climate for its own benefit, not necessarily for anything that you know. It's not. I mean, obviously, the instant the instant the Trump White House left, China's like, oh, we're, we're not going anywhere. Right. So there these things are not interconnected. 
Um, and I think even and so what we're going to see is, you know, we're going to be have, you know, very tricky relations on some areas. And then there's obviously the potential for win win here. Right. So, I mean, climate change is a global public good, right? As Dr. Edward said, there is scope for win-win. This is key collective action that we teach all of you folks about. Um, you know, the U.S. and China are number one and number two greenhouse gas emitters. You don't get progress on climate change if both don't work towards that goal. And to second Dr. Edwards' point about this is in China's interest, China traditionally generated the bulk of its electricity through fossil fuels. It had some of the highest levels of pollution and um, lung disease, particles, uh, you know, all of these negative respiratory diseases because of that. And it was in part to grapple with that at home, which was a huge political issue domestically for them, and to invest in green technology, think solar panels. China is now the world's leading producer of solar panels. So they have made investments in the green economy work for them economically. And one of the arguments that the Biden administration is trying to make is that these investments in combating climate change can produce economic benefits for the U.S. economy, U.S. workers, et cetera. That position is being um, rebutted by the Republicans. So part of this is also a debate about ideas and facts. And regrettably, there's too many alternative facts and opinions there. But the challenge for the Biden administration is to make that argument and to get buy-in from the broad public. And that's a tough challenge in this environment. Dr. Murphy, as an expert in international relations in Asia, can you characterize President Biden's foreign policy with China? You know, President Trump was a very bifurcated policy, right? On the one hand, it was China is a threat, they're eating our lunch, they're stealing our tech, et cetera, et cetera. But then on the other hand, it was Xi Jinping is my best friend. So it was painting China as a threat to mobilize domestic support, particularly among workers and voters who lived in areas that had suffered from economic competition with China. But on the other hand, it was Trump's style of personal diplomacy, right? He had his granddaughter learn a Chinese song to sing to Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, that was his kind of notion of diplomacy. So when you look at the Biden administration and you read pieces like his Asia czar Kurt Campbell has written, it's all about trying to both contain China's power where it threatens U.S. interests and cooperate with China where their interests align on issues perhaps like North Korea, on climate change, 
on um, the pandemic, etc. So there is, like the Trump administration, this element of competition, competition in economics, ensuring that you do defend U.S. companies from cyber espionage and other negative impacts, the U.S. voting system from China hacking, freedom of navigation in the South China Sea from Chinese naval um, coercion. But he has a more multilateral, as Dr. Edwards was stressing, approach and a more traditional strategy, not a personalized type of policy. To add on to that, there, I think that something that many people would say is that there has been a competitive nature to the foreign policy between President Biden and China. But like, I think something that many people talked about is the Alaska summit. Dr. Edwards, can you summarize what happened in and explain its significance in Sino-American relations? The, so the Alaska summit was interesting. Um, and it kind of marked, as Dr. Murphy said, there's gonna be areas where the US and China are gonna compete and there's gonna be areas in which the US and China are gonna cooperate. And, the Chinese knew full well that they were in for a sort of a very different relationship with the Biden team than with the previous administration. And so this is kind of a, you know, there was a bit of a diplomatic spat um, in the sense that, you know, the U.S. wanted to raise some issues, which we hadn't talked about in quite a while, uh, which is, you know, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And the Chinese didn't take terribly kindly to that. And so they were like, well, you've got issues too. And of course, you know, all one had to do was turn on the turn on the television on January 6th and realize, yeah, we do have problems. We do have challenges too. So there was a, you know, this was kind of a feeling out. Um, but there were all sorts of people who were sort of shocked by this. But you know, this is about them putting down a marker that they're going to not um, sort of roll over for um, Uncle Joe. It's also what happens when you have a lot of cameras in place and diplomats decide to play to the domestic audience. You know, sometimes we talk about why diplomacy sometimes works better behind closed doors. Because once you have the accusations flying and both sides feeling that they have to shore up their nationalistic domestic constituencies, you only get that conflict. And then the question is, is that productive or not? For having a domestic audience and tailoring to that domestic audience, was it does that mean that what happened in Alaska wasn't representative of like the current discussions that are happening in Washington between China, between Washington and China? Well, I think it's, I mean, I guess the proper answer is we'll wait and see, but um, there was a certain element of that, that, you know, the Chinese, you know, what is the basis for the Chinese government's legitimacy? Was it elected? No, 
right? So what does it have to do? It has to really, really, really succeed in managing the economy. And Xi Jinping has sort of used, sort of used this nationalism that's been a sort of a ready well for him to go back to from time to time. And so you see that here. Um, there's, you know, there's this sort of this discussion about these these um, Chinese diplomats and social media who are called wolf war warriors, who are sort of talk in a very brusque mode, like you know Ted Cruz or Mike Pompeo, and you know, but and, and they are not they are not they are doing that for domestic consumption, right? So, I think the challenge with those sorts of things is to figure out, okay, what's the signal and what's the noise, and then go from there. Okay, I really want to ask each of you about uh, your expertise and specialization. So, Dr. Murphy, how would you describe U.S. relations with Southeast Asia, and who are the key actors right now? Right now, I would describe them as fairly tension-filled, in part because right now, we are uh, two and a half months past the Myanmar coup where the army took over um, the duly elected regime of Aung San Suu Kyi and has gone about with an extremely forceful way of um, putting down any resistance. So the reason I say that is that had you asked me that question, <laughs> Um, on Biden's inauguration day, I would have said that some of the key actors are a country like Vietnam that was a key former U.S. adversary, which is now arguably the region's most pro-American country. Why? Because China has attempted to assert its interests on Vietnamese islands and oil and water and other territorial disputes. Other key countries would be the Philippines, a former U.S. colony, longtime U.S. ally that over the last four years under its president, um, Rodrigo Duterte, had a policy of bandwagoning with China in the hopes of receiving lots of Chinese investment that has not panned out. And they also hoped that if they appeased China, China would stop its maritime assertiveness on the Philippines. That has not happened. In fact, we've seen the opposite with recent significant mobilization of Chinese paramilitary vessels uh, in disputed waters in the Philippines which quite frankly, some believe are or is one of the ways that China is attempting an early test of the administration's resolve um, because the Philippines is a treaty ally of the United States. And in a significant shift a year ago, Pompeo declared that U.S. commitments did extend to the Philippine maritime uh, zone that is disputed with China, something no previous uh, foreign policy official had done. So that could be a very early test for the administration, um, but the military takeover in Myanmar 
which has triggered U.S. sanctions against the regime, um, more U.S. sanctions. Uh, you have a U.N. envoy. You have the U.N. trying to move in. You have now have the Southeast Asian countries divided on how to move forward. So this is a crisis for Southeast Asia. So for an administration that was hoping to engage in Southeast Asia through regional organizations, something that the Trump administration might do, those organizations right now are in crisis. So this development makes the Biden administration's attempt to reset its relations with Southeast Asia much more difficult. Dr. Murphy, for in regard to the Myanmar coup, how does this relate to the Quad? Because the Quad did say that they wanted to, they wanted to find an early and peaceful solution to the Myanmar crisis as one of their top priorities. So, can you characterize their significance in the region and what it means for Chinese American relations? Well, I mean, the Quad is essentially an anti-China coalition, right? I mean, it dates back 12 years, but really only came to fruition a year or so ago. It's the US, India, Japan, Australia. So four maritime countries that are also democratic, that also all fear China's maritime assertiveness. The US fears threats to freedom of navigation. The other countries fear Chinese assertion on more direct interests. So the Quad is for the first time really holding military exercise, but they're also highlighting their democratic status and the benefits of open societies against challenges from authoritarian ones. As you may know, there's Xi Jinping has argued that the Chinese model of centralized government control and centralized economic decision making is a better model for many countries than an open market based political system, uh, open political system, excuse me, and market-based economic system. So there's a competition between models and ideas and values, and that comes into play in Myanmar. So they had to take a stand. And this is really India being the most affected because they share a border. You know, when Myanmar was a colony, it was ruled through India. Um, but China, while saying that it wants stability in Myanmar, it has not come out and condemned the coup. It has a very long and complicated relationship with the Myanmar military. And quite frankly, this is one of those areas where joint cooperation between the US, China, other allies in Asia like India could actually help foster a potential solution because regardless of what kind of regime you want to see come after, nobody wants the continued bloodshed that is occurring there at the moment that could lead to a civil war. 
Um, what are some policy recommendations that you would make in regard to U.S. foreign policy with Southeast Asia? Um, and what do you think that it will look like in the summer when U.S. engagements with those countries need to happen? Well, in the summer is when you have the traditional meetings of ASEAN and everything. And quite frankly, um, you know, the U.S. has said with regard to Southeast Asia that they wanted to work very closely with allies and partners, as Dr. Edwards says, multilateral, help to strengthen multilateral institutions there. This is going to be a huge challenge because the Myanmar Myanmar is a member of ASEAN. You've had countries like Cambodia, you know, come out and say that they support the military. You've had the Russians in Myanmar saying they support the military and they attended the military day parade and everything in the capital city, one of the few to do so. So there is a split um, on this issue that reflects you know, split in the UN Security Council. And so if that does not get decided, the original plans that the Biden administration had for really working through regional institutions is going to be challenged. And the US needs to find a way to mobilize support for Myanmar and a series of other issues that looks as if it is truly reflects the regional country's interests and is not something dictated from Washington. Thank you, Dr. Murphy. Uh, Dr. Edwards, shifting to your expertise in international trade and the IMF, you said that one of the biggest and also overlooked stories is how the United States is going to deal with the international economic effects of the pandemic. What has the Biden administration done to address this issue and why is it important? Well, okay, when we say that that's a sort of a law, that's a shorthand for a couple of things. What do we need to do to combat the pandemic? One, we need to put a lot of shots in a lot of arms, right? We're doing that domestically. We were practically at 5 million vaccinations last Friday which is, you know, sort of amazing. But the problem is we need to do that globally, right? So one of the first things that we did, that the U.S. did, was we joined um, an international consortium called COVAX, which is about, you know, getting developing countries access to um, these vaccines. So that's been, you know, that's been, that's been important. We obviously need more of that. But at the same time, you know, we're sort of facing the challenge that developing countries are combating this pandemic while they're already facing the headwinds of a global debt crisis. Right? For a lot of these countries, you know, they're relying on foreign exchange. And so, of course, you generate foreign exchange through trade and through tourism. Um, and what did the lockdown do? it choked those channels off, right? So a lot of countries are now facing hard choices. And in many developing countries, they're actually spending more on debt service than they are on public health, which quite obviously from a standpoint of we've got to fight the pandemic makes no earthly sense. So what the Biden administration has been doing is trying to nudge the G20, 
to create more liquidity for developing countries. So one of the things that came out of the IMF um, World Bank meeting last week was that um, the there's this currency that's tied to the IMF called special drawing rights. And what we're going to be doing is actually creating more special drawing rights, which will give developing countries added liquidity. Um, at the same time, the Biden team has been pushing the G20 to develop guidelines for debt relief, because it's not just about um, liquidity in the short term, right? It's not about, okay, I have a little bit of money, I can pay the phone bill. You think about it, you know, sort of a personal standpoint. It's, it's well, if my phone bill went down by 50%, it would be easier for me to pay every month. And so that'll be the next step. And that's the heavier lift, right? Because no one likes to write off debt. Because there's going to be a clear loser, right? The country, the, the country or the bank that issued it is going to say, well, you know, gosh, we made this loan to we made this loan to Zambia in good times, and now the good times are bad, and now we're going to be forced to take a haircut on this debt. So that that's going to be the next challenge um, at the G20 that the Biden folks are going to have to address. But again, that's an essential part of the pandemic. If governments have to choose between servicing foreign debt and supporting public health, that's not going to make anyone's population any, anyone's population better anytime soon. And to add on to that, Professor Edwards, what has President Biden done to change the relationship between the United States and the UN? Well, I think the UN, the UN has been two things. I mean, one, it's been about tone, and sort of the tenor of the relationship was, was right out of the gate. Linda Thomas Greenfield's an established, you know, established Washington diplomat. She had instant credibility. She was not a political appointee or an afterthought, as with either the Trump appointees. So right out of the bat, right out of the gate, you're not getting someone who has a learning curve. Okay? You're getting, you know, you know, Nikki Haley understood how bills became laws in South Carolina. But quite, and this isn't dismissive. There's obviously a learning curve there. There's none with Linda Thomas Greenfield. Um, and you know, I mean, you saw her statement to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. She went to school in a segregated, you know, elementary school. You know, I mean, she's you know, it's like, and so she sort of embodies, you know, America. She's the embodiment of American soft power in a very real sense. Um, so there's to, there's there's sort of you know who you appoint, and there's what you do, and so in the Biden budget, there's now a plan for the U.S. to reduce its arrears to the U.N. because just as the previous administration was really good about racking up debts it didn't pay, the Biden administration is now trying to pay those pay those arrears down, because and that that obviously will improve. U.S. influence the U.N. because we now look like responsible citizens rather than scofflaws. As a final question for both of our guests, what are foreign policy recommendations that you have for the Biden administration going forward? Well, um, I would say I would say just a couple of things. I mean, one, 
all of the success we're having in getting vaccinations in the U.S., we need to double, treble, quadruple internationally, right? That 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 we just need to become a country that does nothing but produce vaccines. Um, yesterday, right? That's how you know. That's how we make the planet a safer place, right? And also, that will. I think that that will, if there are any ruffled feathers about you know what the U.S.'s intentions are, this will solve a lot of problems, right? But rightly so. These are what major. This is what great powers are supposed to do. Um, so I'd say that right out of the gate, and I and I, that's coming. But the other piece I think is. And we'll see this is there does need to be more action on um, on developing country debt. I mean, it shouldn't be the case that any country should have to choose between servicing foreign debt and public health expenditure right now. You know, it shouldn't be it. That shouldn't be the case. That's a very tricky lift. But, you know, that's obviously where we're going. Um, we just It's just going to take us a whole lot of time to get the rest of the world there. The other thing, I th another thing I think that needs to happen is that the IMF annual meeting was full of a lot of triumphalism about how this is a brand new IMF that's going to talk about inequality and it's going to advance the role of women. And that all might be true, but at the same time... Uh, the, what the IMF wants is governments to cut spending, which is not remotely tenable in a pandemic, right? So the IMF really needs to sort of take a, you know, t just as we can think and we think about think about this this way, just as the um, Biden team and the and the Trump team sort of put pauses on people repaying student loans or put pauses on evictions, the IMF needs to put pauses on fiscal conditionality right now because it shouldn't be – it can talk a big game, but if it's forcing countries to make these decisions about what bills we pay, that's not good. I just wanted to follow up on um, Professor Edwards' point about turning the U.S. into the world's vaccine hub. I mean, if you want to talk about what could help restore U.S. reputation, power, et cetera, that is it. So I just read um, over the weekend, uh, there's an annual survey of uh, Southeast Asian policymakers. Their number one challenge is by 87% is grappling with the health impacts of the COVID crisis. None of these countries have independent vaccine production. One of the things that came out of the Quad recently was the Quad's commitment to distribute 2 billion doses of the COVID vaccine. Now, part a large part of that was supposed to come from India, which portrays itself as the pharmaceutical capital of the world, given India's uh, current um, you know, COVID challenges, that's under threat. But COVID is everybody, every country's number one challenge. If the U.S. can help them in that, save people's lives, 
I mean, that is the number one security challenge for any government, right? Keeping your people alive. It's a different kind of threat. So that is clearly something that if the Biden administration can do, can fund, I think would go a long way to helping to restore U.S. image. With regard to making specific policy recommendations, I guess there's two things. One is A, what the policy should be, and B, what the process of getting to the policy should be. So if we look around the world right now, the Biden administration is facing key challenges that it probably did not expect or they were in scenarios, right? You've got the Russians mobilizing on the Ukrainian border. You have the Chinese threatening Taiwan and mobilizing in the Philippines. There's a lot of informed analysis suggesting that these are coordinated tests for the Biden administration, right? One in Asia, one in Europe. That probably was not foreseen. So how is the best way to respond, just as with the Myanmar situation, not to bluster, not to make immediate A, either commitments or B, threats, but to talk to all the people on the ground, consult with your allies, put people in place, assess the situation and coordinate a strategic response. And that is apparently what the Biden administration is doing from all of the analysis that I've seen. And that's the right way to go. We don't know if Putin is really attempting to do anything in the Ukraine or if this is just a feint, right? Ditto China. So it's that approach that I think is very critical. Um, And on that point, It's unclear what the outcome is going to be, but it looks as if the proper strategic response that one would hope for is being carried out. And that's important. All right. That is all the time that we have for this episode. Dr. Edwards, Dr. Murphy, thank you so much for coming on. Please be sure to follow The Global Current on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. This episode could not have been made possible without executive producer Jared Dang, assistant producer Joaquin Matemis, technical producer Brittany Segura, and assistant technical producer Jason Marieski. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. Be sure to catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.5. FM WSOU. I'm your guest host for this week, Jasmine DeLeon. Thank you for tuning in, and as always, we hope you keep it current.